Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open it to Luke chapter 10. And I want to talk to you today um, on the subject of developing the courage to love. Developing the courage to love as Christ lived, as Christ died, as Christ filled our hearts with, and as Christ commanded us. Developing the courage to love. And so we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10. And as I've been praying for us to develop this moral courage to love, my prayer has been that we would move from an if-only kind of love to an even-though kind of love. An if-only kind of love says, I would love you if only it were a little more comfortable. I would love you if only it were a little more convenient. I would love you if only it were a little less costly. But God has shed His love abroad in our heart, and that love is an even-though kind of love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates His love toward us in this. Even though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So an even though kind of love demonstrates our love to one another, in the church, to our families, to a lost and dying world, by saying, even though you curse me, I'm still going to bless you. Even though you persecute me, I'm still going to pray for you. Even though you mistreat me and you hate me, I'm still going to love you and do good to you. Even though I might be penalized at work, I'm still going to let my light shine and tell you what Jesus did for me. Even though my reputation at school might be diminished, I'm still going to step outside of my comfort and be a friend to you. Even though you might be outside of my perhaps socioeconomic or cultural comfort level, I'm still going to treat you as my own. Even though you might be only half-heartedly loving me or not loving me at all, I'm still going to love you with an eternal love of Christ. And even though kind of love has been shed in our heart, now we as Christ followers are to shine that kind of love out to everyone, everywhere. Now, the problem with the United States of America is not that we don't have enough Republicans in Congress or Democrats in Congress or conservatives in Supreme Court. It is not that we don't have enough professing Christians filling church buildings on Sunday morning. The problem is not that uh, Christians worldwide don't have enough collective resources to solve uh, world and water hunger crisis and, and food crises and trafficking crises and adoption crises many times over the true problem with this world is that an even though kind of love has been shed into Christians' heart, and yet we resolve to distribute only an if-only kind of love. And that's what Luke chapter 10 is all about. It's all about receiving an even though kind of love, not as if our hearts are reservoirs, but rivers, and extending that same kind of love to others. This is, an, this is a very exciting chapter. It's a familiar chapter. It's uh, one of Jesus' very best-known stories. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Hospitals and orphanages and churches have been named after this short, pithy little word picture that Jesus painted. But I pray that it unsettles our heart and, and, and results in Jesus' original tent. And that's for us to love with an if-only kind of love. So Luke chapter 10. It was awesome worship team. Great word. Robbie Bollinger and Luke chapter 10. And we're going to pick up in verse 25. So here we go. 
And behold, a lawyer. Now, when we think of lawyers, we think of criminal lawyers or civil lawyers, divorce lawyers. This particular lawyer was a lawyer of the Levitical legal system, the Pharisaical laws, the Torah, and the many, many, many hundreds of additional laws that they uh, stacked on top of that. He was a very educated man. He knew Scripture inside and out. And he thought he knew it better than Jesus, so he was going to go uh, toe-to-toe with Jesus, and, and, and he was instigating this, this fight, this debate with Jesus in order to put Jesus off balance, in order to put Jesus on his, in his place, in order to shine in front of his peers. Verse 25. So he's a hot-headed lawyer. He's a self-righteous lawyer. And he's a lawyer who's trying to get into heaven, as we see, by justifying his own self. Now keep that in mind. Because if you miss that this guy's a hothead, and if you miss that this guy is, is self-righteous, then you're going to miss it entirely. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever known somebody who anything they said, they were just picking a fight with you, and you're like, why even respond? He was putting Jesus to the test, and so he asked Jesus a question, and here's something that you need to know about Jesus. If anybody ever comes to Jesus with an honest question, Jesus will give them an honest answer. If anybody ever comes to Jesus with a dishonest question, He will give them a question in return. And the purpose of His question isn't to answer their question. The purpose of His question is to hold a mirror up to their heart so hopefully they'll see the great chasm between their heart and God or their callousness and Christ's compassion and they'll be broken to the core and repent. Such was the case. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with His question. The beginning of this conversation, holding a mirror up to this guy's heart. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And to that the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And to this Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus knew this wasn't the end of this conversation. So verse 29 But he, desiring to justify himself, justify meaning to uh, earn his own way into heaven because his original question was eternal life. And this word justify, it actually means to make yourself righteous enough to get into heaven and desiring to justify himself and prove his righteousness to Jesus and everybody else. He pushes the questions a little further and he says, and who is my neighbor? Another question. He asks a question, Jesus responds with a question. He asks another question, then Jesus responds with the prodigal son story. And then tags that story with another question. Holding a mirror up to this guy's heart, which we don't know how this guy ultimately responded. But I pray that for us, that we will respond and realize a chasm between perhaps our callousness or in Christ's deep compassion and we'll repent and we'll say, Oh God, break my heart. Make my heart just like your heart. Or if we are functioning in the love of Christ already, then we will accept that as the grace of God in in humility. Say, thank you, Jesus. Please keep loving a lost and dying world through me. And so Jesus replied. And here goes the story of the prodigal son basically holding a mirror up to this guy's heart. 
And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up and he bound his wounds and pouring oil and wine on him. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Second question Jesus turns on this guy. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So this man asked... How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, how do the scriptures read? How how do you read it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, okay, do this and you'll live. Knowing that this man couldn't do that. Knowing that this man could not justify himself. Trying to expose to this man that he desperately needed a savior to impart to him a new nature to love as only God can love. But this man asks, who is my neighbor? Because he was trying to justify himself. The scriptures clearly teach he was trying to justify himself. Now I suppose that there's one of two reasons that we would ever ask, who is my neighbor, when we're wrestling through how do we love in this world as followers of Jesus Christ well? Who is my neighbor? I suspect that there's two motives to ask, who is my neighbor? The first motive is when you look at an overtaxed schedule and an overextended budget and limited resources and reserves and, 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 and small amount of time and, and too little time allocated to family already, somebody might say, who is my neighbor? In other words, with the limited resources and time and capacity that that I have, how can I best maximize it in following Christ to love in a lost and dying world? And I suppose that the second reason that somebody could ask, who is my neighbor, seeking to justify themselves, is because they know they've carved out a comfortable group in which is exclusive and they've determined to love and they don't want to love beyond that and they just want to justify that they are uh, indeed righteous enough to limit their exclusive circle in order to love them. And both motives receive the same response from Jesus Christ. And that is flipping the question around. The question is not, who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? The question is, to whom can I be a neighbor? This is how Jesus turned the question around after the story of the prodigal son. Rather than saying, who is my neighbor? Jesus turns it around. To whom can you be a neighbor? One question is closed. The other is open-ended. One is comfortable. The other is radical. One says, Lord, look to me and protect me in the comfortable circle in which I've etched out for myself. The other says, Lord, here am I. Send me. One seeks to justify ourselves by loving our limited circles, and the other seeks to simply be a conduit, a reservoir of the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. Who is our neighbor? that we can love? Or to whom can we be a neighbor and share the love of Christ? So Jesus' story has three parts to it. The first part of this Good Samaritan story, and let's walk through it. The first part is this. 
The first part of the Good Samaritan story leads us to realize that we are in a lost and hurting world. And we see in verse 30, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This traveler was on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is a city of God. Jericho was a pagan city. Jerusalem was about 2,000 feet, is about 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. It's, I think, about a 17-mile distance between 2,000 feet above sea level Jerusalem and 1,000 below sea level Jericho, about a 17-mile trek. That means it's a very steep road, a quick descent. It's a winding road. It's a meandering road. On one side of the road are jagged rocks and cliffs. On the other side of a road is a large drop-off. I hope to be on this particular road in mid-June. I'll be in Jerusalem, and I can't wait for that trip. But I've been on a road that was similar to this in India. We were going up a mountain to share Christ with people who'd never before heard the name of Jesus. We were in a van, and I don't know if you've ever done any driving in India. Have you guys ever done any driving? It is quite an adventure. But we were driving up this mountain. It was a winding and meandering mountain up, up, a, up a tall mountain, and the roads were very narrow. It looked like only one vehicle could pass on the road. On one side of the road was the mountain cliff. On the other side of the road was the I mean, a steep cliff, a a huge drop. I mean, it would have been all over if we swerved. And these cars, they they, they don't slow down. They don't break for one another. And there was an oncoming vehicle, an iron vehicle, and we just, I mean, you could, on one side of you was this vehicle, was like, there's an inch between you, on the other side is this cliff. I suspect it was a road like that. Now, the thing about this particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho was that it was infamous for many robbers and, and, and bandits hiding around the corner. So it was prime for ambush for these um, travelers who were descending this particular road. So that's exactly what happened to the person in Jesus' story. Some people were around the corner and they jumped him and they beat him and they stripped him and they left him half dead on his way to almost being entirely dead. And there he was on the side of the road. And whether or not this is actually a, a parable or whether or not this is an account that actually happened and Jesus was reciting, we don't know, but we know this much. When Jesus' audience heard about this pass from Jerusalem to Jericho, they didn't deny the likelihood that something just like this would happen. In fact, this particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called Bloody Pass. It was a dangerous pass. It was a path to be avoided at all costs. And that's the story. Or that's the event that Jesus recounted to these uh, listeners. And metaphorically, this speaks to the reality that all around us, people have fallen to the hands of sin and death and brokenness and hurt and waywardness and fear and confusion. And they are beaten and left half dead spiritually because they've sinned and they've been separated from God and their heart is a gaping wound. They've been beaten and left for half dead emotionally. Perhaps they've had a parent that beat them. It's been said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we are all mature enough to know that is not the case. 
Somebody can be beat up as a kid and they'll recover quickly physically, but if they're beat up with words as a kid, and those leave gaping wounds in your heart. There's people who have been uh, sexually abused, children and young girls who have been sexually abused and they're emotionally broken and wounded. There's people who are emotionally beaten up. Their family has been ripped apart and torn apart. There's even kids, right even here in our own church family, who have to wake themselves up at 5 a.m. to walk to school and catch the bus and stay late for tutoring and all on their own, all of their own initiative and self-discipline to get through college on their own and to come to church on their own and read the Bible. There's, there's people who have been beaten and battered spiritually and emotionally and relationally and physically and familially. And the first aspect of the story is very simple. It states the obvious. We live in a broken world. We live in a wounded world. And I believe that the greatest efficiency of the church at large today is that we try to outsource the solution to our country and our world's ills through politicians. News hosts are our prophets. Politicians are our saviors. The American idealized dream is our Bible. But rather than outsourcing the solution to the world's ills, we need to realize that the solution to the world's ills is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has shed abroad into the heart of His church. He's liberally given it to us. And the solution to the world is the love of Christ. And even though kind of love... And so when we consider a beaten and a lost and a broken and a dying world that's fallen into the hands of sin and death and corruption, let's remember that it's not us and them, Republicans and Democrats. It's Christ and those who are broken and lost and desperately need Jesus. That's Jesus' response to a lost and dying world. Jesus was not indignant to a lost and dying world. Jesus was not offended about a lost and dying world. Jesus was broken over a lost and dying world. Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus said. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it. Did he say, I want to call fire from heaven and devour you? No. He said, how often would I have gathered... Your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. And he lamented this brokenness. You and I will never lock eyes with anyone that does not deeply matter to God. And if they're lost, he's not ticked off at them, he's not indignant. With a broken heart and tears running down the face of God. He wants to gather them together like a mother her hens and restore them. And he wants us to know that we are in a lost and dying world. And church is not a place we go. Church is something we are. We are the body of Christ. Church is not a building. Church is a body. It's what we are to one another It's what we are to Jesus Christ as we worship. And church is what we are to a lost and dying world. It's what we are. Think about the lost people in your life. Think about them for a moment. And I know that it's easy for us, as I have in my life, to to write them off, you know, and 
I read a boundary book and feel good about just writing somebody off for a little bit, that kind of thing. But know that the heart of God is that He's broken over them. And we are the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ. But through the Spirit of Christ in our heart, we are Jesus with flesh and blood and a voice and a heart. Second part of this story is to repent of lifeless religion. And we read in verse 31, now by chance a priest, a priest, a priest. We've looked at the Pharisees and the priests and they were the ones who were in charge of the sacrificial system and they knew a whole lot about the law. By chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, they were in in charge of the sacramental system in the temple, a Levite. And they stewarded the law and the sacraments relating to the law. And when they came to the place and saw him, they passed by on the other side. I think metaphorically, it's very interesting that the, that the priest and the Levite, who had an abundance of knowledge about Scripture, and they had an abundance of activity surrounding Scripture, could not save the person who had fallen into the hands of sin and death and corrupting humanity. I think that it's interesting that they saw him, but they could not save him. That's what the law is good for. It can see us, it looks us up, over, it sizes us up, it sees where we're broken, it sees where we're deficient, but it has no power to save us. That's the law. It can see us, but it can't save us. And so they saw this man and they passed on the other side. The priest was filled with religious knowledge. The Levite was filled with religious activity, religious knowledge, rituals, and rules cannot save anybody. And so we need to remember in all of our uh, learning and in all of our doing, if it doesn't drive us to love Jesus more and to love the body of Christ more and to love a lost and dying world more, all of our learning and doing is useless. The only thing that matters is faith, the Bible says, expressing itself in love. And so perhaps we... As I have, as I've I've been studying this text, perhaps we need to repent of lifeless religion. I stepped out to partake in this fast that we challenged ourselves to to walk in this past week, Isaiah chapter 58, which Israel fasted and God didn't hear them. And they're like, we fasted, we've, we've, we've lamented, we've cried, we've cried out to you, we've gone without food, we're starving and we're still praying and you haven't heard us. And God said, of course I haven't heard you. You call that a fast? Just to simply go without, to suffer, and to cry out to me? You call that a fast? And God says, this is the fast of my choosing. To loose the bonds of the oppressed. To to show compassion. To share your food. To take in people without a family. That's, That's what I call a fast. It's a fast of compassion. And so we challenged, we were challenged this past week to deny ourselves to love. And I'll tell you what, the more we strive to love, the more we realize that It's impossible to love like Christ, apart from the Spirit of Christ. And so it's it's easy to hear a sermon like this and just to try to go get busy doing, but the ultimate purpose of this parable is to say, oh Jesus, I need a new heart. I need a revived heart. I need you to so fill me with your love for a lost and dying world that you live and love through me. Jesus said in Luke 16 about the Pharisees, He says, you're lovers of money. 
or the, the Pharisees, they were, who were lovers of money. They heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. Justify. The same word as the lawyer who tried to justify himself by the circle in which he loved. And Jesus said, you try to justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an, abom- an abomination in the sight of God. And the danger with becoming legalistic and trying to justify ourselves by the way that we love, by the way that we do, or by the way that we learn, is that we tend never to compare ourselves to God, but we tend to compare ourselves with one another, and we can't please God and man at the same time, or we can't seek to please God and man at the same time. But how well we love, though it's impossible to love like Christ, how well we love is of preeminent importance, and we will be held accountable. As the Lord replies in the last day, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And these words to me are sobering. And it makes me realize Jesus is very serious and very sober about how well we love. So how well do we love? Because all that matters, again, as Paul said in Galatians, is faith expressing itself in love. The priest and the Levite did not love well because their hearts were very far from the heart of God and they will be held accountable for that in part three. The third part of this story is to demonstrate compassion in Luke chapter 10, verse 33 through 35. So the priest and the Levite pass by and the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, to the Hebrew audience, this is a contradiction in terms. How can a Samaritan be good? They're half breeze, half Jews, half anything else. There's incredible racial tension between the Hebrews and the, Jew, and, the, and the Samaritans. So the priest and the Levite, who you would think would be the heroes of the story, were not because they were uh, religious, but they weren't compassionate. Their religious was lifeless because all that matters is faith expressing itself in love. It's interesting to me that the lawyer who is asking Jesus the question about who is my neighbor, seeking to justify how well he loved, was okay with the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because as far as the lawyer was concerned, that was philosophical, that was ethereal, that was abstract. That means he could say that he loved God, but it was so, uh, to him, unquantifiable that you couldn't really even tell if, you, if he loved God or not. So he was okay with that commandment because it was too ethereal, it was too abstract. But loving your neighbor as yourself, that's what concerns him because that's very quantifiable, that's very concrete, and that's very practical. It's day in and day out. And the Levite... And the priest passed by, here comes the Samaritan, the hero of the story, and he demonstrates compassion. We start in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion is a beautiful word. Sometimes we have sympathy. Sympathy feels sorry for somebody. Um, Compassion is much deeper. It's like empathy in action. Compassion doesn't just feel sorry for somebody's plight. Compassionate, it feels what they feel. So much so that they're moved to, to action. 
Compassion is derived of two words, comb and passion. Comb being with and passion is to feel deeply. It's to feel with somebody in need. This is compassion. And let's look at this Samaritan's compassion in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This is very practical. But let's just look at four characteristics of this good Samaritan who represents Jesus Christ in our life. What this compassion looks like. One, on a very practical level, when he came to where he was, he saw him. He saw him. Compassion has eyes to see. Hurting. Compassion doesn't close our peripheral vision off to those outside of the, the comfort zone in which the Levite or the lawyer had etched out as the object of his love. Compassion opens up our peripheral, peripheral and sees those all around us in need. It's easy to be very busy about ministry and busy about vocations and busy about responsibilities and just go from one place to the next and not see when somebody's countenance is downcast in our family and to stop and to say, um, what's going on? And, and, and dive into that. Lee, Lee Brown, the director of Hope Works Christian Academy, she'll, she'll say to me sometime, we're like ships just passing in the night, zooming past each other. So, so she said, let's, let's try to be intentional about not just zooming past, but, but talking to one another and communicating. And, and let's, all, let's, let's all be careful not to be so busy that we don't see what God sees. One of my favorite songs that came out 20-something years ago was by a band called Audio Adrenaline. And it really stirred in my heart. I would play it over and over and over as a prayer. And it says, I, I want to see the world through Jesus' eyes. I, I want to see through Jesus' tears. I want to feel the world through the hands that create it. That's my worldview. Would you like it to be your worldview too? I believe that the fundamental reason that the priest and the Levite did not see, they saw but they didn't feel, not deeply enough to be moved with compassion. I believe that the fundamental reason the priest and the Levite didn't have eyes to see with compassion is because they were driven by a question of fear. And fear always asks this question. If I stop and help, what will happen to me? I mean, is this guy bait? Are there more robbers right around the corner? Is this an ambush? This is a dangerous place. If I, if I just lollygag on this path, I mean, am, am, am I going to beat up as well? Fear always asks, if I help, what will happen to me? Some people speculate that the reason that the priest and the Levite didn't help was because they were, they, they were late to some uh, religious activity and, and they had to get onto it or because there was some uh, Levitical law that prevented them from touching an unclean body as they were on their way to do some, 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 some religious ceremonies or some might have even speculated that they are on their way to a meeting which would address the, the larger issues at hand and the larger issues were, were uh, how to improve road conditions from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, let's just get, get at the heart of the matter. But I believe that they didn't stop and help because they were driven by the question of fear. And they said to themselves, if I stop, what will happen to me? 
The Samaritan, on the other hand, did stop. He did see, and he did feel with compassion, because he inverted that question. Rather than be driven by fear, which says, if I help, what will happen to me? He was driven by the question of love, and love asks, if I don't help, what will happen to them? And that's the fundamental difference between fear and love. Fear says, if I help, what will happen to me? If I share my faith, what will happen to me? If, if I carry my Bible and they see that I'm a devoted Christian, what will happen to my reputation? If I step out, if I take time out, what will happen to my business or to my career? If I love unconditionally, I mean, what will happen to my boundaries and so forth? But love says, if I don't love, what will happen to them? He saw with deep compassion and secondly, Compassion seeks out. And we go on to read, He saw him and then he went to him. Love seeks out. Love steps out. Love initiates. Love walks up. Love introduces ourselves. Love initiates. Love says, no, I insist. I'm going to help you. Love takes the initiative. Love picks up the phone. Love, love, love initiates. I have a friend whose name is James Stroud. And he was the Grand Dragon for the Ku Klux Klan some years ago. Covered in the most offensive tattoos that you could imagine. And if you saw him on the streets, you would probably wrestle through the tension between this sermon and, uh, and being a friend and like running away from him. <laughs> um, he was a rough guy. And the FBI was monitoring him and watching him, and he he was a rough guy. Well, his wife left him. His wife left him for a a lady. And he was broken about it, and many other things were going on in his life. And he parked his motorcycle in the driveway, and he was walking up to the house, and he just broke. He, he, he He couldn't carry the strength any longer. From day to day, he couldn't maintain the strength, and he just collapsed on his knees and started crying. And guess what? His next-door neighbor was an African-American gentleman. And he saw James Stroud, and he knew exactly who he was. He saw him on his knees crying on his front lawn, and this man walks over, and he gets on his knees with him, and he puts his arm around him, and he cries with him, and he prays for him, and he leads him to Jesus Christ. And James has since repented and is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ who's like a teddy bear these days. James's neighbor represents what it is to step out. It's to see. It's to have eyes to see. And it's to seek out. You see the difference between asking the question, who's my neighbor? That's preset. It's closed. But to say, to whom can I be a neighbor? It's open. It's like saying every day, Lord, here am I. Send me. Give me eyes to see as you see it. And then the love to step out and seek out the spiritually lost, hurting, and hopeless. And then compassion soothes the hurting. The good Samaritan, he gets an oil and that's... And then the wine. And the wine represents the, the blood of Christ. The, the, the blood and the bread, the wine represents the blood of Christ that cleanses us of our unrighteousness. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of Jesus. He soothed our needs with oil and wine. He cleansed our sins. He filled us with the Spirit. He heals us. He restores us. And now we're Christ's conduits to a lost and dying world. We are cleansed and righteous. And we now lead the, the, the lost to Jesus Christ. And, and if they're already saved, then we still soothe them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and the comfort of the body of Christ the church family 
and compassion go so far as to serve the hurting. It doesn't calculate. It's radical. We, we, we serve the hurting. The Good Samaritan from there, he, he binds him and he, he soothes his, his, his wounds with the oil and the wine and he puts him on his animal. At first the Good Samaritan was riding his own animal, but then he dismounted and now this man is riding uh, the Samaritan's animal. This is a picture of Christ's substitutionary work in our life. It's, it's Christ who serves us. He not only washed the disciples' feet, but He washed our sins away on the cross. It's Christ who serves us. And it's Christ who sustains us. And now we as the body of Christ are to serve one another. And this week, I saw so many people in this church family loving well. I was so proud. In so many different occasions this past week, my heart just, it just grew with encouragement. One of our youth, the 17-year-old Brandy, told some of the 8-year-old kids in her apartment complex, Brandy and Victoria are up in the kids' ministry right now, and, um, but she told some of the 8-year-olds in her apartment complex, hey, this Friday night, come over to our apartment, and we're going to watch movies. It's not a big deal, but you want to know what it is, because those 8-year-old kids look up to them like they're superheroes, and that was love. It was seeing a need and seeking them out and, and being creative and, and serving them with their own time. And loving on them. I saw a Facebook post of my, my, my brother Robert Moore right here on the, on the front row. And Robert was in prison in Jesus Christ. I mean, absolutely got a hold of this man's heart. He is a man of God, true and true, right down to the core. And now Robert Moore goes back into prisons. And he shares what Jesus Christ has done in his life. And I see John Harrelson who goes into prisons and shares what Jesus Christ has done in their life. And he says, this is what Jesus Christ will do in your life as well. Yesterday I was on my way to, to, to help Melissa Rich move, although I only helped with one load of some light boxes, and then I left. But I saw Robert Ersprung and Robbie Bollinger and Archie there moving her. And it's, what is this? It's faith expressing itself in love. Is it terribly theological? Absolutely. It's theological to the core. And if our theology doesn't have this kind of compassion and action, then it's wasteless theology. It's theology that can't save. If it's theology that can't reflect Christ to the body of Christ and to a lost and dying world. My heart is always so swelled with gratefulness and joy on Wednesday night when I see Stephanie and Kathy and Sherman and Reggie and other adults loving on the teens and just pouring into their lives. Um, Iris, Russell, my heart is always so filled with joy when I see her who sometimes might not feel 100% herself, but if somebody's at the hospital or about to go into surgery, there she is praying with them and comforting and, and encouraging them. That's love in action, faith in Christ being expressed in love. And the fourth part of this text, Jesus is trying to lead us to recognize that we cannot love like Jesus apart from Jesus. After he shares the story of the Good Samaritans, he asks the lawyer, which of these guys was the neighbor? He says, well, I guess the, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, exactly, go and do likewise. Again, turning the question around, not who is my neighbor, but to whom am I called to be a neighbor? This is an open-ended question, and this is a question that we can't answer ourselves. This is a question in which we must allow the Holy Spirit to answer to our life as we daily allow ourselves to be surrendered vessels and conduits of Christ's love. 
The proper response to the story of the Good Samaritan then is not to simply leave this place and get busy doing more, as tempting as that might be. It is to become so deeply startled and broken by the chasm between our callous hearts and Christ's compassionate standards that we pray. Have mercy on me, Lord. Forgive my hard-heartedness. Change me. Give me a heart that loves like yours. Give me your heart, O God. This man sought to justify himself. This story is very similar to the story of the rich young ruler who asked Jesus what I must do to have eternal life. And Jesus, just like this man, held up a mirror to his heart when he said, sell all your possessions and good and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the young man walked away sad because he had great wealth. And the disciple said, who then can be saved? And the point of that encounter, Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And in the same way, Jesus held a mirror up to this man's heart and he said, you think you love well, you're not loving well. Look at the chasm between your callous heart and the good Samaritan, which is a reflection of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. And the point is not to get busy doing more, but the point is to say, Oh God, give me your heart. Give me a new nature if you're not saved. And if you are saved, to rely so much on Jesus through relationship that He fills you and drives you to be His hands and feet everywhere, every day. And receiving a new nature. Paul later says in Galatians, What really counts is the new creation. Earlier in Galatians, he said, all that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And then a chapter later in Galatians, he says, this is possible by receiving a new nature, by becoming a new creation. As we see in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, that when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He will remove from us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, and He will put His Spirit within us, and He will cause us to follow His ways. To love God and to love people. But it's not us trying to get busy and do more. It's about us receiving a new heart, His heart, that loves perfectly, that loves passionately. So that we don't simply extend grace to difficult personalities. And we don't simply exercise niceness. And we don't simply tolerate people patiently who are different than us no but something inside of us drives us to love them and to have compassion for them and to feel what they feel and to be moved to meet their needs as Paul said in Romans God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us his love has been shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ We need to remember that the main thing is love, and the only way that we can love as we are called to love is if Jesus has so filled our hearts. Interestingly, Luke chapter 10 tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and then when that conversation with that lawyer is finished, the very next segment in Luke chapter 10 to close out the chapter is Jesus eating at Mary and Martha's house. Are you familiar with that passage? And Cassidy, you can come on up if you like. So it's, it's Mary and Martha. They're, they had dinner. They had Jesus over for dinner. And if you recall, Martha's in the kitchen. 
and she's working and getting dinner ready and she's preparing. And do you remember what Mary's doing? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He's just enjoying Mary's company. They're talking and he's pouring into her. He's talking to her about faith and life and scripture and himself and living water, I suspect. And, and how you're the light of the world and things about heaven and the Father. So Mary's at the feet of Jesus. And she's enjoying his company and he's enjoying her. And Martha is stressed and she's frantic and she's busy and she's working in the kitchen. And she keeps kind of glancing over at Mary and she's like, I could sure could use some help in here. And she keeps glancing, she keeps glancing. Jesus and Mary are still just having this great time together. She keeps glancing and she realizes this, this time they're having isn't going to come to an end. She's working, working, working. And finally, she had it up to here. And she scolds Jesus. Jesus said, Lord, can't you see I'm busy? Maybe y'all could visit another time. Could you have Mary come help me? She actually said that. And then Jesus responded to her, it's in your outline. Martha, Martha, you're worried and busy about many things. But one thing is necessary. Not she's doing the most important thing. You see the difference? He didn't say she's doing the most important There's a time for everything, but this is priority. She's doing the... No, no, no. One thing is necessary. Not many things are are, are necessary, and she's prioritized well, and she's doing the most important thing right now. Jesus said one thing. And in fact, if you have your Bibles open, you should just circle that, underline it, put arrows to it, stars all around it. Remember that page number, put the bookmark there. Jesus said one thing, just one, is necessary. And she's doing it. She's basking in my presence. She's at my feet. She's delighting in me. I'm pouring into her. And as we're communing, her heart is starting to beat and sync with my heart. But aren't we supposed to love? And aren't we supposed to do good? And aren't we supposed to serve in ministry? And aren't we supposed to help the poor? And aren't we supposed to bring in people without families and share our family with them? Of course, we're supposed to do all of these things, but one thing is necessary. That's because all of these things aren't tasks. It's not burdensome. It's not laborious, laborious. We can't help but do these things because we we would not want to be anywhere else in the entire world because our heart is so filled with love because we spent time with Christ. And so we're driven to do these things. We can't help but do these things because it's where our heart is and it's where our energy is. We have that capacity. We have that love. Sometimes I I look at people who are walking with the Lord and and I know other people might ask about them. They say, man, they're really going to get burnt out. They they need to slow down or or you're you're not going to be able to, 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 to sustain this pace. Or sometimes people might say something like that to me. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. It's all of Christ's energy that's so powerfully at work within me. But that comes from one place. And that's spending time with Christ. And He gives me His heart. And I'm driven to love by Him. And it is an endless, an endless supply of divine energy and divine love. But once I forget that one thing... Once I try to cut corners and save time and skip that one thing to do a hundred other things, I don't have the capacity for these things any longer. And it's like, a, it's like a mountain of stress and burden on top of me. So we've all got to go back to remember this one thing. And that's the feet of Christ. It's a relationship. And He so fills our heart with love and divine energy that He just loves through us. He loves people through us. He loves beyond ourselves. It was so awesome. Uh, 
I think one of the highlights of my year so far was to, I saw an extremely highly educated man recently from our church family spending the day with, with a dear homeless brother, uh, just serving him, getting some things lined up in his to, to get his house in order, just serving him, loving on him. And I talked to the, to the educated man. Um, and I said, uh, I said, it's just, I mean, that just fills my heart with joy to see you loving like that. And his eyes filled with tears. And he said, oh, it fills my heart with joy to see my heart like this too. And uh, they left the office and I just watched them get into their car through the window. And then I went into my niece's office, Brianna, and I said, it was pretty awesome, wasn't, wasn't it? And she, she just had tears coming down her face. She said, I love our church. You know, it's, love is not, it's not laborious. It's, it's not burdensome. So long as the main thing is the main thing, and that's that we're seeking Jesus Christ every day and growing in this relationship with Christ, and then just repenting of a callous heart and constantly praying He fills us with His heart to love a lost and dying world. And what does that look like exactly? I can't say because it's something that you have to surrender to the Holy Spirit in your life on a daily basis. As you, as you inverse the question, who is my neighbor? To Lord, to whom do you want me to be a neighbor as I am driven by the, the divine winds of your Holy Spirit today? And then the next day after that, and then the next day after that. But it is more adventurous than any of us could ever imagine. So would you stand with me, please? You know, if you would like to just consecrate your heart to the Lord and respond this morning and say, fill my heart with your Holy Spirit. Come down here and do that. And let's respond to the love that Jesus showed us with worship. And also just come down here and say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me, God. Use me to love a lost and broken world. Use me. All right, let's respond.